Okay, so we're we're going to do a quick lesson actually on uh, Levi. You know, when Jesus uh, called Levi, and um, you know, just one thing I absolutely love studying uh, is the disciples. You know, and how God, how how Jesus had called them. You know, and this was you know what leading up to this. You know, quite a bit has already happened in Luke in the fifth chapter at this particular time, and you know. Uh, one thing we we are actually just not so long ago we studied about how you know and this is actually one of the very few accounts that actually gives this much detail about how Peter you know was called you know and this was after the fact that he had toiled all night out in his ship and um, Jesus uh, came and uh, uh, sat you know and they were on the lake of Genesaret and he actually um, sat and taught you know right there out of uh, Peter's vessel. And uh, the thing I love about it is, you know, Jesus told him, you know, he performed this miracle and told him, you know, cast out your net and be prepared for a drop, which is a big catch. And we actually kind of talked about that, um, you know, and one thing, too, and, and I'll say this, I, I say this quite often is, um, again, this is kind of one of those scriptures that we call common or ones we hear about a lot. Or if you go to church, you know. If you go to church, you know, just about every Sunday, you begin to think, you know, I hear I hear about how the disciples were called all the time. But it's one of those things that just never get old because I love talking about it and reading about how God performed these miracles and how he chose just ordinary men. So if you actually look at the disciples, one thing I'll point out is half of them were actually fishermen. One of them was a Canaanite, which was actually a term referring to kind of an outsider. And if you actually, I actually dug deep into that, and this is for like another study, but a lot of people refer to Simon, the Canaanite, which there's not a lot of entries in the KJV on him. But what I can say is he's often, if you actually really dig into him, he's often referred to as what they call a zealot. You know what a zealot is? Um, so a zealot was somebody, there were... I don't, I don't want to say they were kind of a group of extremists, but they were borderline that. Like, they were basically like a group of people that were extremely zealous, you know, hence the name Zealot. They were extremely overzealous about, you know, the old Mosaic law, you know, the law from the Old Testament. And people, and they were often a group of people that would stand against the Roman government. Because at this particular time, Rome controlled all these provinces. Remember how I explained provinces when we were studying Esther? They're basically like little, I mean, oversized countries that are controlled by one nation, you know, is basically the way to think of it. But Zealot is somebody that was very, very zealous, but they would often stand against the political power, stand against the Roman rulers, and they would often be the ones to try to uh, cause uh, uproars, you know, to stand against, you know, those that stood against the Jews and the Mosaic Law and those things. But it just, I guess the point of what I'm trying to say with that is God called ordinary people that were not really much different than us. You know, he called people that were in sin. He called people that had doubt, that doubted. He called people that lacked faith at times. He called people that took a little more time to believe than others. And these men were the disciples. And one thing, one of the disciples in particular that we're going to focus on is actually Luke 5.27. And this is the calling of Levi, so I guess a little short little study. Um, we'll just go 27 to the end of the chapter because there's a lot in here, you know, and it just doesn't do it justice to kind of skip over it, you know. And, but uh, do you want to go ahead and read 27? Sure. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh. 
of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. So go ahead and stop there. So right off the bat, one thing I love about this is you know one of my favorite, and I don't try to put favorites with the disciples, but one thing I love about this is the calling of Levi. So there's kind of a common theme with these disciples as you dive into these scriptures. You know, and one thing that I love about it is, you know, he told them, and, and the thing that I love about the Gospels is some of these accounts, there's like a different point of view in each of the Gospels. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, like, for example, you know, the calling of Peter, Peter and Andrew. They were sitting on the seashore. The other accounts just kind of give a brief description of Jesus calling them, and the Bible just says that they forsook all and followed him. You know, forsake means to put it all to the side and just immediately follow him. Versus Luke 5 here, right here, he has a much deeper account. And that's why I think when you're studying the Gospels, you should run the references and kind of take a look and see the other accounts in the other Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, and take a look at them. But Levi, I love this account because, it, you know, but, but what I'm trying to say with that, back to that is, you know, it, it just kind of gives you a different point of view from each one of the writers. You know, the writer of Matthew, you know, Mark. They all have a different point of view. Now, there's some accounts, though, that you'll find in the Gospels that aren't kind of repeated in the Gospels, you know, where they don't have a point of view. There's just one account of it. Like, Mark is... I feel like Mark is kind of more straight to the point. You know, it actually doesn't even go into the genealogy of Jesus Christ like the beginning of Matthew, right? So, but anyway, back on topic... So this account, you know, so to kind of expound on this, uh, do you know what a receipt of custom is? Not really. That's, a, that's okay. That's why we're here. Um, so Levi, the thing you need to remember is Levi was actually a Jew. And he was one that, if you actually really dig deep into him, the receipt of custom was basically a tax booth, is what it was. He was a tax collector for the Roman government. Is that why I said receipt? receipt of custom he was receiving you know and so actually uh 27 here there should be like a reference yep so there's a reference that says there's scriptural references but then there's one that says tax collector or tax office so kind of like uh i mean i i don't like to say it like this you know but just like I mean, typically when people are taking when the government is taking money from the people they're you know tax collectors aren't going to be very liked you know just like the america america we have we have the irs some people are not fans of the IRS. You know, so in this particular case, though, the Jews and the Romans, you know, they didn't like the Romans already anyways. But the thing right here in this particular instance is Levi was one of those. A lot of people looked at him as a traitor. You know what a traitor is? Yeah. He kind of sided with the enemy, I guess you could say, in a way. That's basically what a traitor is. You know, someone that is a Jew, but he's working for the Romans. And he's taxing his own people. So that's the way, why they frowned on him is... He, they were already under great, because of all the census, is that Roman imposed on this particular, you know, in this area, you know, like you read about the census during around Jesus' birth. The Romans were heavily taxing the people all the time, you know, into where actually some of them were dirt poor. They really were. So him being a tax collector, he was the guy that everybody hated because he was the one that showed up instead of the Roman soldiers. Well, they would later if they didn't post payment. For their taxes, meaning pay for what they owe. He was the guy that would go collect the money and worked in the booth. 
But the Romans were the ones that would typically, if you look into it, it actually the Romans would probably usually only get involved more like secondary in case somebody was, you know, giving him a lot of grief. But he was very well mistreated and very well hated by his own people, I can tell you that, because, again, he was looked at as a traitor. So, and, you know, so I guess if you really think of it that way, think of, like, the dynamic, you know, meaning, uh, so when he was walking with the disciples... You know, it, it, one thing to kind of consider is I, I think it's safe to say that being that he was looked at as a traitor, I would say it would venture to say that um, he probably wasn't very well liked even by his own kin in the, for a little while in the beginning because they were Jews, right? They were just fishermen out making a living, but he was also the one collecting taxes from them. You know, so it, probably not really well liked. But it just gives a show that God wasn't isn't a respecter of persons, and the Old Testament shows that. Do you know what it means to be a respecter of persons? Uh, respect people? So, kind of, but what it means basically is it's to hold people to a different standard. You know, God's not going to love the Jews, the literal Jews, more than the Gentile. You know, God, that's, that's not scriptural. You know, now spiritually, you know, again, I've already explained this before. If you're saved by the grace of God, we're inward Jews. You know, Romans 2, at the end of Romans 2, it actually talks about that. So we're part of that. But what I'm trying to say, though, is that God's love isn't uh, more favored towards, like, you know, he doesn't love you more than he loves me. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't play favoritism. He doesn't have favoritism. He's not a respecter of persons. He's not going to, like, hold it in regard somebody that it's more well-off and rich versus somebody that's dirt poor. That's not that's not at all the character of Jesus Christ. You know, he loved all. He taught us all to love our neighbor, you know, to love, to pray for those that despitefully use you, to pray for your enemies. You know, that's the type of character that Jesus Christ was. So it just goes to show you, he wasn't a respecter of persons, but he had big plans for these disciples, right? So he called them from, he all he did is, you know, saw a publican, you know, so obviously, you know, verse 27, actually a publican, meaning he was a tax collector, and he was working at the tax booth, and all he said unto him was, follow me. But then look what 28 says, and he left all, rose up, and followed him. So, if he was sitting at the tax booth, and just left all and followed him, guess what that would mean? That would mean that he left his tax booth to go follow Jesus. That means he basically turned his back on the Romans, you know, the job of the Romans. Now, granted, it doesn't say that they went after him or anything like that. It actually, right now, in this particular time, but he did he did exactly kind of the same theme. It's kind of the same theme, like the same thing that Peter did, right? You know, in what it says in the other accounts of the Gospels where he said, you know, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then he said earlier on in this chapter that he'll teach them how to catch men. So Jesus didn't care who or what you were. He was more interested in, were you willing to put faith in him and follow him? You know, isn't that kind of the same attitude as, you know, we should have towards him? You know, as God's people? You know, we should, you know, obviously when you're lost, you know, there's, you know, God's going to provide that increase of faith, that measure of faith. But when you follow him and you seek him out with all your heart as a lost person... And he saves you, you're forsaking all, all of your thoughts, all of your, you know, what you think is right, what your flesh tells you, what Satan's in your ear telling you that you can wait. You're, you're putting all of that to the side to go and follow him. It's kind of the same thing for a lost person, right? You're putting all of that to the side to go to follow Jesus. You know, you're doing it on faith. You know, so again, one thing that I'm going to say with these disciples, and I'm not trying to go on a huge long rant with these, is 
these disciples, yeah, they were men like us, but they had jobs. You know, obviously they were fishermen and he was a tax collector. They put all those things to the side to follow Jesus. So my thing is this. How do you survive if you don't have any money? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, you, you earn money from your job. So I guess what I'm trying to point out here is that these disciples, what they did is they put all those worries and all those cares and all those needs to the side because they knew that Jesus, you know, they, they trusted him on faith. But also, too, there was still was something inside them to, that, that they knew there, you know, because, you know, when the gospel comes your way, you know the truth. You know, it's revealed. That's why we always say you kind of got to get, quote unquote, get lost before you get saved. The gospel does that. It reveals to you, you know, what's missing down on the inside. And that's the spirit. You know, it just goes to show that as they travel with Jesus Christ, you know, and went wherever he went, they knew that Jesus had everything that they needed. You know, they weren't going to be lacking anything. You know, so any uh, any thoughts or comments? You know, I know I've talked a lot. You happy? Mm-hmm. Good. So after that, I'm sure. It just it just kind of came to me. It just kind of like when you read uh, in twenty seven, it said, and after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom and he said unto him follow me and he left all rose up and followed him mm-hmm. it's just people looked at him as a traitor and he was working as a tax collector for Rome mm-hmm. and he just right away you know went for Jesus yeah and, and that's the way we need to be and maybe it's because he was a Jew or maybe it's just because he knew he needed to follow him you know, I'm going to venture to say, too, he probably wasn't really treated that well, I'm going to venture to say. You know, I, I, I feel comfortable saying that. You know, now, I'm, I don't know in particular about the Romans, but, in, you know, if you're a traitor or looked at or viewed as a traitor, you know, I mean, he probably was mistreated by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But, obviously, you know, we know later on that Matthew got the witness of really great things. You know, Peter got the witness of great things. You know, John, the disciples got to witness very great things. And... The other thing I'm going to point out, too, is that these disciples, you know, as you read through these Gospels, you know, you can't help but think, like, okay, yeah, they put all those things to the side to follow him, or kind of on hold, or to the side. But, yeah, they had made mistakes. They, you know, they had shortcomings, just like anybody else. That's why I said in the beginning, they were kind of ordinary men. But, at the same time, you know, it just, but look at all the things they got to experience with Jesus Christ. You know, it's kind of the same thing for a lost person. I'm not trying to equate us to, like, apostles or prophets or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that, but God uses whoever he pleases. You know, he has a use for every one of us. He has a purpose for every one of us. So the thing that I I always get stuck on is, you know, like Peter and John being taken up into the mount and witnessing Jesus Christ being transfigured before them. And hearing the voice from heaven saying, "This is my son, and whom I am, bil- and this is my son, and who I am well pleased," then they say, "Hear ye him." Is what Jesus is what God says to them. You know, Peter. I look at it, Peter like he was. I mean, I don't give him a bad rap for what he wanted to do. He wanted to build the three tabernacles because they saw Moses and Elias and everything they saw, and then they saw Jesus transfigured before them. You know, so in a way, he was kind of beside himself. But I guess the point I'm making is look at all the amazing things that these guys got to witness. 
you know, from their journeys of going with Jesus Christ. They got to see people healed. They got to see people, you know, uh, their lives changed. You know, as a Christian, you know, I, I get it. You know, we don't have the ability to physically heal. We don't have the ability to, you know, uh, to do the things that Jesus did, in, per se, like, you know, the physical. But spiritually, we do get to see these things, you know, from a spiritual aspect. We may not physically see Jesus Christ. But we get to see him do some amazing things in people's lives daily, you know, when we're being a witness, but just around the church, you know, that God has placed us in the local body. You know, when you see people get help, you know, that's that's amazing, you know, from God, that are, people that are struggling get help from God. When you see somebody come to the altar and just give their heart to them, you know, and just completely trust them on faith and get saved, we get to witness those things as his people. You know, it, it, to me, I feel like that's a great commission on our part. On why it's so important that we be a light and an example, you know, not what we do, but be an example of the believers is what the scripture teaches us, you know, and I believe that these disciples, you know, especially trusting them at this particular point of faith later learned, you know, Peter had many shortcomings, you know, Paul was stood him to the face in the, in the book of Galatians, I believe it is, you know, or it, it may not have been in the book of Galatians, but there was a point in time where Paul withstood him because Peter was a culprit to a problem a little bit with trying to separate the Jews and the Gentiles when God had already said that, look, my kingdom's for both, not just, you know, my my spiritual kingdom is for both, not just for one or the other. He died for all, not just one set of people. You know, so I, the things that we get to witness as Christians, you know, those things are, um, I'm going to say, you know, those things are, uh, how do I word this? Um, those things are priceless. You know, you can't, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. There's no amount of money in the world that adds up to that. There's no amount of, uh, uh, I mean, there's just nothing that's better than that. I mean, period. You know, plain and simple. But any thoughts or comments, bud? Nope. So then, you know, it, it, right after he left all, 29, it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with him. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, "Why do you eat with, <laughs> why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners?" And Jesus answered, said unto them, "They that are they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." You know, so uh, unfortunately, this is going to be a common theme throughout the Gospels, as you read, is the Pharisees are going to constantly they're they're trying to constantly trip up Jesus. They're trying to constantly trip up the disciples. They're constantly trying to persecute them and and be in the way. And they're wondering, you know, because they were always taught by the law to, you know, not go in under other nations, to be a separate people. They were always taught that. But see, Jesus was showing them, like, look, you know, those that are already whole don't need a physician. They already have me is basically what he's saying. You know, but they that are sick. So I don't think he's talking about literal sickness. I think he's talking about sin sickness. You know, those that, you know, have the not, not a literal disease, but a spiritual disease, void of him. Those that, you know, he didn't call, he came to call the righteous because, the, the, see, they're only, and the Bible even says that, no, there's none good, no, not one. So my thing with this is this, is that if none of us are good, not one single one of us are good, you know, the only way we can be called righteous is if we have a spirit. Now, what I mean by that is his spirit is the one that makes one righteous. You know, there's nothing, our, my right, our righteousness, our fleshly righteousness is as filthy rags is what the scripture says. But he didn't come to call the righteous, those that are already saved, because those that are already saved, they, they've already got it. You know, they, they should already know what to do at that point. But he came to call sinners to repentance. 
Now, repentance, I'm also going to say this too. I, I believe once saved, always saved. I believe that God is the keeper. Since he's the one that does the saving, he's the one that keeps us. My thing is this, is, you know, but repentance is something that doesn't just stop. We, you know, just because we're saved for eternal, for it would be just because we have eternal life doesn't mean we go out and willingly sin, right? You know, we don't do that. No, he tells us again to be an example. But he said, you know, but he was saying, I, but, but so what I'm trying to say is that repentance is something that we don't stop doing. We, and repentance is when you turn away from you and turn towards God. You know, we have to constantly do that. That's why Paul said, I die daily. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, any thoughts or comments? Going on lots of rants. <laughs> Good? Yeah. So Levi, you know, made a big feast, you know, and they were with publicans and sinners. The Pharisees were murmuring. I actually have a question. Mm-hmm. Why did they, why did the Pharisees and, hold on, why did the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, like try to trip him in every way possible. Try to trip him up. Yeah, it's because they. So it was pride. I'm just gonna just say sure outright. You know, the scribes are typically the ones that would record everything down, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, so these were two sects of um, people. You know, the Pharisees. I, I believe they did believe. So the Fer- the Sadducees. Actually, if you read about the Sadducees later on, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that he ever resurrected. Well, believe it or not, we got a lot of people in this day and age that don't even believe that Jesus came. You know, so you know it, that's not really something unheard of. I guess you could say the Pharisees had a little bit of a different set of beliefs, but it, what it boils down to is it's pride. You know, because they're stuck still in the Mosaic Law. But, and actually, Jesus kind of gets into that towards the end of this chapter, basically, on how he's saying, basically, he's using, like, an analogy, I guess you could say, or he's using, like, kind of, almost, like, parable form, like, a way to try to get them to think, is that they're trying to add to it by their pride and their tradition. They're trying to add to what he's doing, when in reality is you can't add or take away... Why did they have pride? It's because they, you know, they think that they're the only people that get to be the people of God. You know, they didn't believe, like Jesus was literally in front of them and they didn't even believe that he was the Messiah. We have religions in this day and age, in this day and age today, that are still waiting for the Messiah to come, although he's already came. You know, because this stuff isn't made up. You know, this stuff doesn't just come out of, you know, thin air and out of nowhere. You know, he already came and did all these things and there's more than sufficient enough evidence not that I need it personally. You know, I don't need to physically see those things to believe in him. Um, but. I can feel him. I don't need to be. I, I don't need to see him. Yeah, because I feel him deep down on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. That's the part of having the spirit. You know, don't need to be shown those things. Just like these guys. You know, when he called them. Yeah, they some may have taken a little more time to, you know, Peter kind of doubted when he told him to let down his net after he had toiled all night. But God showed him, like, uh, just remember, though, you know, he, he performed a miracle in front of him, but he also just basically showed up, like, hey, I'm the big dog, and I, whatever I say basically goes, and that you need to just trust me and follow me is basically what he was showing him. So so the Pharisees, I, did that answer your question, though? It, it, just, it was basically pride. You know, they didn't want to believe that. Although they knew in their heart that he was the Messiah, they didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah. So... <laughs> So they continue on in verse 33. It says, And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. 
you know, and he said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them. And this is where he kind of is. So, uh, yeah, he speaks a parable to them. So this is where he tries to get them to think. So when you read parables, if you just read it at face value and don't try to run references and try to understand what the parable is actually talking about, think of it like a big picture that actually teaches a lesson. That's that's the way I like to look at them. So he says in verse 36, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon, upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put in the new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine, straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. So you, you probably have no idea what this is talking about. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to expound it. I'm going to explain it to you. So it took me actually a really long time to understand this. I'm just not going to lie to you. You know, it just, God revealed it to me when he thought it was fit to reveal it to me. But in short, basically, by their tradition, like basically the Pharisees' traditions, do you know what traditions are? Yeah. By what they thought was right, not what Jesus said was right, by what they thought was right, they were basically trying to add to something that was already there. So, for example, you know, I, we already talked about how in the law, Moses, you know, God from the mouth of God, down onto the tablets, the tables of stone, tablets of stone were given down to Moses. The law was passed down to Moses. They had an actual physical law, the way I like to think of it in simple terms, is they had rules and regulations. They had laws that they had to follow. They had, they had steps that they had to take for different offerings like we've been studying in our Bible studies. And... But they everything was done. It, it, basically, the reason why God gave them the law is because man needed something to live by. You know, how would you know? My thing is this: How would you know what is sin if there wasn't anything that told you what was sin? You wouldn't know. So that's kind of what the purpose of the law was. But what you would find, though, and basically kind of what he's explaining is that, you know, he didn't come to kind of just, you know, destroy the law. You know, the old way. That's what he's basically talking about here. He didn't come to destroy the old way. You know, just like them, they're trying to add to the law something that was already perfect. They're trying to add their tradition to it and try to hinder what Jesus Christ is doing. So what he's trying to explain to them is that he's not coming to destroy the law. He's coming to fulfill it is what he's coming to do. That's why in the transfiguration, when Peter and John were up in the mountain, they saw Moses, they saw Elias. Moses stood for the law, Elias stood for the prophets, and Jesus was there to fulfill it all. He was there to fulfill it because he was going to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment for sin. And the best part about it is he only had to do it once versus them in the, in the Old Testament. They had to do it, they had to keep on doing it. But well, you know what? there was one limitation that the law couldn't do. You know what the law couldn't do for people? And Hebrews explains this. The law couldn't take away sin. That's the difference between, and so that's kind of what he's talking about here. He came, here he said earlier, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he came because he's there to fulfill the law and make it, basically he's he's the mediator of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the go-between. So he came to fulfill the old and bring in the grace way, is basically what he's saying. But he's saying basically by their tradition, they're being a stumbling block, basically, because they're going and adding to something that was already perfect, but then they're also trying to take something and 
they want the old way, but they want to add what they think is right to it. And he's basically saying that's not how it works. And they're also so it's these these four script these four verses thirty six thirty seven thirty eight and thirty nine. I feel like they go really deep into you know kind of how God you know is kind of coming to fulfill the old and bring in the new you know the New Testament church by his death. So he's basically so one thing about you know if you know anything about wine is wine starts off as like a grape juice, and if you leave it in the bottle, it expands over time. And it does what they call ferment. So just like the chicken feed, I've been fermenting their feed. You know, now it doesn't make the chickens drunk or anything. You know, it just it just <laughs> it just sits in the the glass. You know, and basically rots. Kind of is what it does. And it adds, it, it, but it, it, it the properties of it change. So basically, what he's saying is that why it's in there, it expands. And when you try to go and take, you know, something old and put it in there, you know, it just doesn't mix. You know, you can't mix the two and add what you think is right. You know, there's there's a lot that could be in here, and I could go on and on about the components of what he's talking about right here. But he's basically saying that you know, the, because the, the Pharisees already thought they were righteous. You know, that's the other thing to kind of keep in mind. They already thought they were righteous by their tradition and by their observance of the old law. Do you know what Mosaic law is? Law of Moses, the law that was passed down to Moses. That's what that means. You know, but Jesus was there to fulfill it. You know, so they're trying to, they thought they were already righteous, but the truth about it is, what is the one thing that I kind of already said earlier that the Pharisees and the Sadducees lacked? Uh, Faith. Faith. They had too much pride. They did not have faith. The the Messiah was standing right in front of them. There's so much in, there's so much in themselves and their tradition you know, often you'll actually read in scriptures here, and I think that this is a good stopping point. I threw a lot at you. I didn't think it was going to go this long. Um, but oftentimes the Pharisees would, what they would do is they would often try to, when they were going and basically trying to pick at Jesus, you know, for everything that he did, they would say, oh, well, my father is Moses. But the truth about it is, yeah, okay, they didn't have to probably get saved back in the Old Testament because they just had the law that they would follow, the workings of the law. But it doesn't change the fact that there was also still faith in the Old Testament. That's why Abraham, his faith was imputed as righteousness, meaning he had faith, even in the Old Testament, in the old way, even through his covenants. You know, he had faith that God would, you know, make him a father of many nations. He knew that he had faith that God would keep his promises. He most certainly did have faith. Those, Jacob, you know, I, you know, I, you read about him, and you know, later on, yeah, he had a shortcomings too, but he, I still believe that he had faith. You know, we have many examples in the Old Testament. Faith has always been something, a major important component from or part from the very beginning to the end. You know, it's not something that just goes away. You know, so they would say, "My father's Moses," but also forget that Moses served God. <laughs> you know. And so that they were they were kind of sticking their chest out like, oh yeah, but by my works, that makes me righteous. James taught against that. The Bible, actually, the book of James teaches against that. What good, you know? And I'll leave you with this to get you thinking. James in the book of James said, "Faith without works is dead." What's the point? So if you if you're doing works and you have no faith, why you do it? I did. Yeah, recently I did. Yeah. So if you 
It's no, no, no. basically what James is teaching. Say the scripture again. Faith without works is dead. What he means is that you you know you can't have one or the other. You got to have both. You know you can't have faith. I mean you um, so you can't just get saved and have faith and then just never work for God. You know that's not how it works. You know you got to have both, and you can't just say oh well and like what they were doing. They're basically saying they're not having faith, but what they're saying is through my works, the workings of the law, I'm already righteous. But Jesus was telling them that look, your righteousness is nothing. You don't have any righteousness without me. Because I'm bringing in and ushering in the New Testament church is what I'm doing. So they didn't have faith, but they said, look at my works. But the truth about it is when you have faith, you should have a desire to work. If you're going to work, you need it needs to be seasoned with faith. You can't have one or the other. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Peter, the book of Peter, I've heard people argue that the book of Peter teaches to have works and not faith. Well, I disagree with that completely because if you actually understand the book of Peter, there's you know a lot more to it than that. But I think that's a good stopping place. You, you have any questions? Comments? Honestly, no. You taught me everything I can know about here. Like you know, the big thing about Levi, I love Levi because, you know, God used him for some amazing things. Levi later was renamed Matthew. Yeah. And then we have the book of Matthew. So he obviously, you know, was very insightful and seen a thing or two. You know, God had big plans for him. You know, just like any of us, he's got big plans for all of us. Mm-hmm. All right, till next time.